Uh, Before we dive in, I'm going to read it for us and pray, and then we'll dive in. Again, this is Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they, Jesus and his disciples, came from Bethany, he, being Jesus, was hungry. And seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city, verse 20, and they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word. Let's pray for our time. Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather and to hear from you, the Lord. We pray that you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to believe the good news that you've laid for us this morning in your word. So to that end, we pray and we commit ourselves and we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. What does Jesus want from you? Have you thought about that lately? What does Jesus want from us as his people? What does Jesus want from you? In John chapter 15, a different gospel text, Jesus gives us this beautiful and instructive word picture on the relationship between the Father, God, and us, his people. Jesus tells us in that that he is the vine and that we are the branches. And as that we stay connected to the vine, we begin to bear fruit. He's telling us that our vitality and our fruitfulness in life are dependent upon how closely you and I stay connected to the vine, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus goes on to say that the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one that prunes us in order that we might bear more fruit. And then in John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. What the Father, what Jesus is after in our lives is that you and I would bear much fruit that brings glory and honor to God. And what we see in our passage in Mark 11 that we just read is Jesus coming to his people, seeking and hoping to find that very fruit. And what we see and what we will see is that Jesus is not very happy with what he finds. 
Instead of the fruit of sincere devotion in worship, he finds the fruit of hypocrisy. That instead of the fruit of powerful missional engagement in the world, he finds apathy. And he uses this opportunity to expose his people and to rebuke their unfaithfulness, to rebuke their fruitlessness. And he uses this opportunity to encourage his people and to encourage us, to exhort us to lives of greater faithfulness and fruitfulness. So as we dive in this morning, considering that idea that Jesus is coming to us looking for the fruit that honors and glorifies God, I I want us to notice something about this text before we, we really dive in that I hope will begin to set the stage for what we have to see. Mark does something interesting here in this passage. Maybe you picked up on it when I was reading it. He, he takes two stories and he kind of sandwiches one story in the middle of the other. He starts by telling this story of Jesus and his disciples coming to this fig tree looking for fruit. And then he, he kind of cuts away to this episode in the temple where Jesus is clearly upset about some things. And then he, he cuts back to the fig tree and has Jesus talking again to his disciples. Mark does this often. What he's saying is that these two stories are meant to be illustrated together. That what we see Jesus doing with the fig tree is what we see Jesus doing in the temple. In a sense, the episode with the fig tree, it's a parable. It's a a parable in real life. Jesus comes to the fig tree hoping to find fruit, and he finds none, so he curses it. And in the same way, he comes to the temple. He comes to his people hoping to find fruit, And he finds none, and he's not very happy about it. What's interesting, though, and maybe you picked up on this, is that Mark says something that we've got to to deal with. Mark says that Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree down the road as they're walking from Bethany to Jerusalem. And he comes to it hoping to find fruit, and he doesn't find any. But Mark says in verse 13, For it was not the season for figs. So think about that. Jesus comes to this tree, hoping to find fruit. He finds none, because it's not the season for figs, and yet he curses it. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is going on in here? And I think when we peel back the layer here, there's something very, very instructive for us that will make more sense when we get into this episode with the temple. I don't have time here to talk about everything that I learned this week about fig trees, But fig trees are harvested in the late fall, August to October. And then sometime before the winter cold sets in, they grow these small, little, uh, unripe figs that stay throughout the course of the winter. And then sometime around April or May, they begin to bloom a little bit. They're not fully ripened figs. They're a little bitter, but they're edible. And the sign that you know that these little figs that have remained throughout the winter become edible is that the branches begin to put out leaves. So once you see a fig tree in early summer with leaves on it, the expectation is that you would find these little figs that at least if you were hungry could quench your hunger. That's why Mark tells us he sees a fig tree in leaf. So from a distance, there was an expectation that as Jesus drew near, there was going to be fruit. And he shows up, and there's none. So it's not just that the fig tree is fruitless. It's that it's deceptively fruitless. It promised fruit, but on closer examination, it was found wanting. This is why Jesus is angry with the tree, because it promised fruit and did not deliver. 
This is why Jesus is angry at the temple. He's angry with the religious leaders. Why he's ultimately angry with Israel is because it promised fruit, yet when he drew near, not only did it not have the fruit that it should have had, it was bearing fruit that was the exact opposite. And so we see Jesus engaging his people here, pursuing fruit that honors and glorifies God, and that's what he's up to in our lives this morning as well. And so here's two ways I want us to look at this passage this morning as Jesus comes to us looking for fruit. If you're a note taker, here's where we're going. The first thing I want us to see is this. Jesus exposes our hypocrisy in order that he would produce in us sincere devotion and worship. Jesus exposes our hypocrisy and encourages us to sincere devotion and worship. And then secondly, Jesus rebukes our apathy in order to produce in us, to encourage us to powerful missional engagement. That's what we see Jesus doing here in this passage. That's what we're going to see Jesus doing here with us. Let's dive into that first one together. Jesus exposes our hypocrisy and encourages us to sincere worship and devotion. In verse 15 to 19, we get this very powerful picture of Jesus entering the temple, and in a sense, cleaning house. The temple was the epicenter, the heartbeat of Israel's religious and cultural life. It's where worship happened. It's where sacrifice was made. The temple itself is where God dwelt in the midst of his people. The temple made Israel who they were. It's what distinguished them from every other nation on the face of the planet because that's where God was. But Mark records for us, when Jesus shows up, he quotes two Old Testament passages to describe what's taking place in the temple that ultimately makes him upset. In verse 17, he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 56 and a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 7. And this is instructive for us. It shows us what Jesus sees and what the problem is with what's taking place in the temple. Jeremiah chapter 7, that verse where he quotes this, you've turned my house into a den of robbers, is a prophecy of warning and a prophecy of judgment against Israel because they were living in idolatry, they weren't serving the Lord, but they thought, because we have the temple in our midst, because God is with us, surely everything must be okay. Israel was worshiping false gods. They were taking advantage of one another, but they were saying, surely it's not that big of a deal. God's still in our midst. We have the temple and all of that. They were presuming upon God's presence, and therefore God was not happy with their worship. Jesus says, that's exactly what's taking place here. Jeremiah 7 is being fulfilled in our midst. Y'all think everything is okay because you're going through the motions And yet I, the Lord, am not pleased with the worship that is taking place in this place. We see in verse 15 and verse 16 that Jesus drives out the money changers. He flips over the tables where people are buying and selling animals. And we were tempted to think, well, maybe that's the problem. They're buying and selling animals in the temple. The temple has become a place for commerce. And on one level, Jesus is upset at that. But on another level, this is perfectly normal. People would travel miles and miles to come to the temple to worship. 
Many people didn't have the animals that they needed to sacrifice so they could buy them at the temple in order to be able to worship. It's a great service to God's people. The problem is is they were charging exorbitant prices for the animals. They knew that in order to worship, you need this lamb. You need this pigeon. You need these things. And so rather than charge you market value, we're going to up the price 10, 15 times. God's leaders were taking advantage of and extorting his people And Jesus is not happy. It says he flips over the table of the money changers. The religious leaders required the people to pay a tax in order to make sacrifice. But they would only accept one kind of currency. So as people traveled into town, they would have to exchange their money at the temple. They were charging unfair exchange rates on God's people coming to worship. Jesus is saying, Jeremiah 7 is happening. Y'all think everything's okay on the outside. This looks good. Sacrifice is happening. There's a bustle. People are here. And yet the worship that you're offering me is unacceptable. Think about that. The temple, the place where God, the Holy One, dwells, where sacrifice and worship are offered has been turned into a front where God's people are being extorted and cheated, all to line the pockets of the religious leaders and authorities. That's why Jesus is so angry. Rather than sincere worship and devotion, Jesus finds this. And again, it's just like the fig tree. It looks good on the outside. Everybody would have seen the temple and thought, wow, this is beautiful. Look at all the people buying and selling. Look at all the sacrifice being made. But it reeks of hypocrisy and it reeks of injustice. This is just what Jesus told the religious leaders. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. This is a great warning for us. It's a hard warning. It's a somber warning. I can see the look on your faces, but it's a great warning for us. Each of us can easily fall into the trap of thinking that what God really wants is our church attendance. As long as we're fairly regular here on Sunday mornings without one hour a week, then surely God must be satisfied. We can fall into the trap of believing that even though God has saved us and called us to holiness, that it's okay to continue engaging those patterns of sin, those habits, to keep looking at that website, to have that one extra drink even though we know it's too many, to continue engaging in gossip, to keep swiping that card even though we know we don't have the money. We can easily fall into the trap of acting like we have it all together keeping our brothers and sisters at arm's length, acting like the goal is to appear outwardly like things are going well. That's the hypocrisy, the facade that the Lord Jesus is seeking to tear down this morning in our lives individually and corporately. I've got a friend who is a pastor in another city, and he's discipling this young man, 23, 24 years old, fresh out of college, sharp guy, professional, good-looking, loves the Lord. On the surface, everything looks good. Over the past few months, he's been experiencing some health-related things. He's been having weird pains, and so the doctor said, hey, let's, just, let's run you through a CT scan, see how things are going. The scan comes back and shows that his body is riddled with cancer. And Jesus is saying, that's what's happening here. On the outside, you look great. 
But as we do a CT scan of what's going on in the inside, there's cancer everywhere. Jesus is after exposing this hypocrisy in our lives. And so what is the antidote to this hypocrisy? How do we fight against it? What is it that we should actually be pursuing instead? And Jesus gives us that answer in verses 20 to 25, that rather than hypocrisy, we should be pursuing sincere worship and devotion. Jesus tells the disciples when they go back to the fig tree and Peter says, look, the the fig tree has withered away to its roots. Jesus says to him, have faith in God. Then he begins to talk to them about prayer that's powerful. He begins to talk to them about an awareness of forgiveness that leads us to be gracious to others. And what Jesus is saying to them is that the answer to hypocrisy is the gospel, a true understanding of what God has done for you that overflows out into our lives. The only way that you and I will bear the fruit of sincere worship and devotion rather than hypocrisy is if we believe, if we understand, if we rest in, and if we live out of the gospel. As we've said last week and this week, the the temple was supposed to be a place where the gospel was put on display front and center. It communicated God's holiness, but it also communicated that God allowed sacrifice to be made to take away our sin. We know now that Jesus Christ is the true temple. Jesus Christ is the one that we draw near to to worship God, to experience his presence We know that Jesus is the one who offers his body and his life is the true sacrifice that takes away sin. The antidote to hypocrisy is to fully embrace the good news that Jesus Christ the King has laid down his life for you, securing salvation by grace from all your sins. So let me offer as we close out this point and move on to the last point, uh, just a few practical steps to cultivate sincere worship and devotion. It's interesting, Jesus mentions faith, prayer, and forgiveness. He says, the fruit that I was looking for in the temple that I couldn't find is faith that leads to a powerful prayer life and that leads to forgiveness because you know how much you've been forgiven. And so this may sound like a broken record. I try to say this every time I'm up here, and I'm going to say it again. Worship and a devotional life, these regular rhythms of Bible reading and prayer are what keep our hearts soft and dependent upon the Lord. Going back to that John 15 picture that we started with, Jesus talks about bearing fruit by staying connected to the vine. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear fruit. There'll be no healthy, fruit-bearing lives apart from staying intimately connected to Jesus Christ, that staying connected to him in his word and in prayer. How's your prayer life these days? Does your prayer life communicate an awareness of just how dependent you are upon the Lord? Does it communicate an awareness of the roots of sin and hypocrisy in your life that you desperately want the Lord to address and remove? It's something the Lord's been challenging me with. There's so many areas in my life where I want to see God at work in me personally, in my family in my children, in our community, in you. And at times I'm going, Lord, why why is this not happening? And then I'm like, wait, 
I spend far too little time praying for you to actually do some of these things. The Lord's been challenging me with that. What about forgiveness? Jesus connects our experience of forgiveness and our offering of forgiveness to others as one of the things that actually makes our prayer life effective or not. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Who is it that you're struggling to forgive today? Who is it that a root of bitterness rather than grace and mercy is creeping up in your heart when you think about them, when you engage them? That's severing the cord, in a sense, from the life-giving vine. The more that we recognize how much God has forgiven us, the more that we become a people who offer grace and forgiveness to others. And so again, as we close this out and move on to our final thoughts, which won't take very long, Jesus exposes our hypocrisy in order that he might call us into sincere worship and devotion. The last thing I want us to see, and again, this will go quick, is that Jesus rebukes our apathy and he encourages us toward powerful missional engagement. In verse 17, which we've already mentioned, Jesus says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 56. If you were to go back and read Isaiah 56, it's this beautiful picture how all of the nations, when the true king comes and sets up God's kingdom, will be welcome in the temple and can draw near like full brothers and sisters. The temple itself was intended to be a lighthouse to the nations, a place where prayer is offered for the nations and a place where the nations can draw near and pray themselves to the one true God. And the heart of Jesus' rebuke is that the, the nations, the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish family were being kept at arm's length and weren't being allowed in. The Jews had become apathetic to their calling in the world. What's interesting is this entire episode in verses 15 to 19 is happening in the temple courts. It's this giant outdoor area that was called the Court of the Gentiles. It's a roughly 35-acre outdoor area. That's the only place that non-Jewish people could enter the temple to offer sacrifice and to pray. And all of these things are happening there in that place, preventing the Gentiles from getting in and actually praying. The Jews had totally missed their calling. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And through you, I'm going to bless every nation on the earth. And the temple was where people were supposed to be drawn into to be blessed by the Lord. Rather than being conduits of God's blessings to the ends of the earth, they had become reservoirs. They were hoarding God's blessings for themselves. And as I've thought about myself and I've thought about us, we can easily fall prey to the same apathy, to this same lack of missional engagement. We can easily become consumed with our own lives and fail to even see those who are around us. We can easily become crippled by fear and therefore not take the opportunities and the open doors that the Lord gives us. We can easily forget the judgment that Jesus promises comes to every person who does not confess him in this life. 
And when we think these things, we become apathetic to our calling in the world. Just as the temple was intended to be a lighthouse to the nation, so are we, individually and corporately. And so let me offer as we close just a few encouragements of how we can move from apathy to powerful missional engagement. The first is this, you actually have to see people. You actually have to stop long enough to look at people. In Matthew chapter 9, we get this beautiful picture of Jesus seeing the people, and it says he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We have to stop long enough and look around at all the brokenness and the division and say the ultimate answer for this is that people don't know God. They don't have Jesus. And the more we let that cover us, it begins to stir us to compassion. We have to pray. It's not a coincidence that Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he encourages disciples, have faith in God. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. There's something about our prayers. The church is intended to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so I would ask you, who who are you praying for? that God would use you in their lives to draw them into the blessings of being near and having the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me encourage us with this. Pursue genuine relationships. Genuine, true relationships where you care about people are the only things that are going to bear the weight of the conversations that are needed to help somebody come to the Lord Jesus Christ. How different would this room look 24 months from now? If every single one of us who claims Christ in here committed ourselves to opening our eyes to those around us, if we committed ourselves to pray faithfully for God to use us, if we prayed specifically for people in ministries in our city and in our community, how different would this room look if we faithfully engage the people that God has put in our lives? The call for us this morning is to pursue sincere devotion and worship rather than hypocrisy and to be powerfully, missionally engaged in the world. And so I've been praying for us this week, and I'm about to pray for us again this morning, that we would be those people who stay connected to the vine and therefore bear this life-giving fruit. Let's pray together. Father, we come and we thank you for your great love. And we pray that we would be a people who abide in Christ and therefore bear the fruit of sincere worship and devotion, who bear the fruit of powerful missional engagement in the world. Father, we thank you even now for these new members that we get to add to our family. We pray that you would sustain them with everything they need to know and love and serve you well. To that end, we pray and commit ourselves. We do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.